Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Today on Policy Forum Pod, the desperate struggle for homeless people unfolding in contemporary Cambodia. You know, there's a lot of layers to what's going on here, but a, a pretty desperate situation for the poor themselves where uh, they're just literally not welcome in their own communities anymore. And we take a look at the nation's troubled past. It's part of a pattern of total insensitivity, total indifference to basic human rights, which I'm afraid has characterised this regime really from the outset. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. The podcast for those who want to dig deeper into the public policy challenges facing the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Martin Pierce. In this Policy Forum pod, we're going to take a close look at Cambodia. It's a country whose recent past was plagued by extreme violence. Large-scale bombing, civil war, invasion and genocide. Accident in total killed more than 2 million people over two decades. But it's also a country whose present appears to be plunging back into the human misery of its haunted past, with not only state-sanctioned, but state-perpetrated violence being carried out against some of its most vulnerable citizens. It's violence that is being largely overlooked by the international community. Today, we talk to two leading experts who will shed some light on the disturbing human rights violations being committed in contemporary Cambodia. Professor the Honourable Gareth Evans, ACQC, is Chancellor of the Australian National University. He has been recognised at both the national and international level for his extraordinary service and contribution to international relations, particularly in the Asia-Pacific, to global policy, conflict prevention and resolution, and to arms control and disarmament. As one of Australia's longest-serving foreign ministers, Professor Evans was the architect of the United Nations intervention in Cambodia and the 1991 Paris Peace Agreement to put an end to the mass murders and other human rights atrocities of the 1970s and 80s. He has continued to monitor developments over the years and he remains an influential and respected voice on Cambodia today. Dr Simon Springer is an Associate Professor at Canada's Victoria University. He spent the last 15 years doing research in Cambodia, looking at patterns of political and structural violence that have arisen as the country has transitioned towards a free market economy and struggled with consolidating its democracy. His research has included looking at the plight of Phnom Penh's homeless and interviewing hundreds of people on the ground there. He's published a number of books in that time and he's worked to draw international attention to the grievous situation unfolding. It's a situation in which Phnom Penh's homeless are systematically being rounded up by the police, their possessions arbitrarily destroyed, and they themselves are being deported to what are effectively concentration camps outside the capital, where they're subjected to appalling conditions. This is part of a broader pattern of human rights violations, 
from curbs on free speech in the media to restrictions on elected political opponents that seriously threaten the country's prospects for free and fair democratic elections in 2018 and, longer term, for a peaceful democratic future. We'll take a look at how and why violence has returned to Cambodia today and what needs to be done to bring it to an end once more. Policy Forum's Fiona Benson caught up with Gareth Evans and Simon Springer last week. Here's what they had to say. So, uh, Dr. Springer, Professor Evans, thank you for your time today. Not at all. Yeah, thank you. Now, Dr. Springer, if I could start with you. You've said that there are worrying signs that history is repeating in Cambodia and that, to quote you, today there is a dark and desperate struggle unfolding in Cambodia's capital city, Phnom Penh. Can you explain what exactly is happening? Yeah, I mean, there is... um a really sort of negative response that's occurring to the poor in general and the homeless in particular. And what's going on is essentially um, what I view as a, a logic of wanting to create Phnom Penh as this sort of vibrant, modern uh, city that's a site for both tourism and investment. And this plugs in, you know, to a larger logic of global capitalism, but how this is manifesting on the ground in Phnom Penh is that um, it's this very sort of um, concerted effort to move homeless people out of the spaces of of the capital city, an out-of-sight, out-of-mind sort of mentality where... um, homeless people are deemed unworthy of being visible in public spaces. And so what's been happening for probably about, uh, well, over a decade now, probably about 15 years at least, is that there have been periodic roundups of homeless people where uh, police will come in, you know, flatbed trucks and and, um, run and, and chase after homeless people within the city, gather them up, put them into the back of a truck and uh, basically ship them out to the countryside and tell them not to return. So, um, you know, there's a lot of layers to what's going on here, but a, a pretty desperate situation for the poor themselves where uh, they're just literally not welcome in their own communities anymore. And what's the scale of this? What sort of numbers are we talking about in terms of the homeless being displaced? Yeah, I mean, it's really it's really hard to tell. I mean, Today, especially, um, I was last in Cambodia. I think I went back to Canada. It was uh, the end of August 2015, and I had spent five months in the country. And it was uh, a very different sort of situation than the time I was there before in 2013 and the time before that in 2010, um, where now it seems that it's uh, much harder to find homeless people in the actual core of the city. Uh, they've been displaced a little bit to the periphery, and part of this is just the the um, intensity of the policing in the central core of the city, but part of it is obviously a response from homeless people themselves who are realizing, well, if we stick a little more to the peripheries, maybe there's less chance of harassment. But in terms of, of general numbers, it's really hard to get a handle on just how many there are because there's this constant, um, uh, essentially a game of, of, of cat and mouse where they're uh, running away from police, trying to escape sort of thing, trying to remain as uh, invisible in the city spaces as possible while at the same time being shipped out to the countryside and the new sort of response has been to put them in detention facilities as well. In terms of numbers, if I was to guess, um, 
easily in the thousands, the number of individuals involved in this process um, at any given time in the streets of Phnom Penh. I mean, depends depends where you're looking. You can, you know, drive down any road, sort of, so to speak, and, and see a handful of people pretty much anywhere. But, um, yeah. So given, given that situation you've outlined, Professor Evans, if I could turn to you and your long involvement in Cambodia and, and certainly some of the darkest points of its history. Um, Dr. Spruance talked about homeless people being seen as, as unworthy, this displacement, the roundup. Is this, do you think, cause for concern? Does this hold echoes of, of some of the previous treatment we've seen of Cambodia's people in the past? Well, there are certainly many grounds for concern about the human rights environment in Cambodia at the moment, not only in the context of the treatment of the homeless, the dispossessed, but also some people being pushed off land uh, for corrupt dealings for regime um, cronies and acolytes to benefit financially, plus uh, very serious uh, violations of basic human rights principles so far as freedom of speech and association are concerned, intolerance of dissent, dissent uh, occasional resort to violence when the you know the governing regime feels under any pressure at all, and really only the barest pretense of a democratic process in terms of a willingness to give respect uh, to opposition elected uh, politicians and to operate as any kind of a uh, proper representative uh, democracy. So you've got all those problems of which the um, dispossession and treatment of the homeless is just one. It would be stretching a very long bow to say that this is a rerun of 1975 when the Khmer Rouge marched into Phnom Penh, emptied the city, executed a large number of people outright, particular middle class people wearing spectacles, university students, a number of people I met in the years before and never saw again, but not only executed outright, but of course sent out into the countryside, yes, uh, but not just out of sight, out of mind, worked to death in the countryside uh, or, you know, suffering malnutrition or disease uh, with the result that in total we had something like two million people um, dying or being killed uh, directly by that terrible genocidal regime. So I don't think anyone seriously suggests that what's going on at the moment um, is on that sort of scale or justifies that kind of um, characterization as quasi-genocide. But there's no doubt whatsoever that it's part of a pattern of total insensitivity, total indifference to basic human rights, which I'm afraid has characterized this regime really from the outset. Indeed. And that pattern is something you've been uh, studying, Dr Springer, uh, that Professor Evans identified, the pattern of uh, escalating in arbitrary violence. And uh, also, I understand you've been looking into places such as the now infamous Preispu, in terms of where some of these homeless people are being relocated to and the conditions uh, that they are subjected to in these centres. Can you shed a bit more light on what you've uncovered there? Yeah, I mean, it's the it's this particular center itself that is, uh, you know, one of the the cores of the problem, if you will. I mean, the the larger pattern, uh, as Professor Evans pointed out, it's it's related to landlessness, it's related to land grabbing, it's related to the speculative economy that sort of uh, emerged in Cambodia. Um, where people are being pushed off their land or, or displaced from, uh, you know, in, in rural settings, displaced from their land and in urban settings, you know, forced out of their um, makeshift ho homes or sometimes, you know, more, um, more 
uh, everyday sort of uh, dwellings, you know, brick and mortar, so, so to speak. But um, in terms of uh, this particular facility itself, it's uh, a case where the government has seen that their response to homelessness in terms of shipping people out to the countryside and telling them not to come back to the city, that this hasn't really been working. Obviously, uh, people who are uh, sent out to the countryside, the reason why they're in the city begging on the streets to begin with is that they you know, have no means to a livelihood. So shipping them out to the countryside where there's also nothing for them is not a solution. Inevitably, they'll come back to the city. And I've talked to uh, many people who have, you know, spent days on end walking back to the city, sometimes with three children in tow sort of thing. Uh, because at least in Phnom Penh, there's a, a place for them to eke out a living. So the response from the government in the last couple of years has to been has been to set up this detention facility, Preispu, uh, as it's colloquially known. And this facility um, is basically the government refers to it sometimes as a rehabilitation center, sometimes as a re-education center, and sometimes quite obscenely as an opportunity center. When what's actually going on in these facilities is. Uh, according to homeless people themselves, is not a pretty picture where we have uh, a number of abuses taking place, whether that's physical abuse from the guards, uh, the women complain of being raped and indeed gang raped within these facilities, and there's even been some confirmation of killings taking place within these facilities as well. So, um, you know, a lot of rumors swirling around what's going on inside. Um, and I've managed to uh, talk to many people who have who've been through the facility and have even had uh, a tour of the facility on two occasions myself, which was obviously prepped for my arrival. So um, perhaps some of the most grotesque abuses weren't taking place when I was actually at the facility, but nonetheless been able to have a lens on what's actually going on inside. And it's, uh, it's not pretty at all. And in terms of the way that this, you know, corresponds with an earlier logic of, of displacement and, and sort of, um, grotesque human rights violations in Cambodia's history is we see this kind of similar, uh, spatial logic in terms of concentrating you know, undesirables, so to speak, into particular areas. And it's not, as Professor Evans indicates, you know, a, a genocide by any means, but certainly a very troubling human rights situation where, um, you know, people are, are desperate and uh, indeed terrorized uh, by the prospect of going through a facility like this, because what it means to uh, connections with other people in, in their communities. You know, many homeless people in, in Cambodia have very tight communities and being, you know, torn away from that and um, locked up in a facility breaks those kinds of bonds. And then, and, you know, the abuse itself is uh, mm. very troubling. I mean, th these are grievous human rights violations that you've both raised. Um, Professor Evans, if I could refer you to some comments you made uh, two years ago now when you said there is a place for quiet diplomacy that relies on genuine engagement to encourage significant behavioural change. But when states behave, ba behave badly enough for long enough, loud megaphones can also be in order. Is this what you think is you know, needed now to address some, some external pressure to address some of the internal uh, goings on in Cambodia? Yes, I think um, political responses from the rest of the world, certainly from the region, have been far too muted given the scale of the uh, violations that have been going on. 
for really a very long time now. We've given these guys the benefit of the doubt over and over again. I certainly gave Hun Sen the benefit of the doubt because I worked very closely with him on the peace. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Settlement process back in 1989-1991, and he did deliver. We got a deal together with the help of the United Nations and a lot of other countries that did end the civil war, did return several hundred thousand refugees from the camps and the border, did create the basis for what has been a reasonably vibrant economy ever since, and certainly created the foundations for a stable political environment. But really, from the word go, Hun Sen made it very clear that he was about the retention of political power, that he was not going to tolerate any kind of a democratic process which would undermine that. The coup events in 97, which are widely remembered, the deaths of a number of peacefully demonstrating people through the grenade attack, um, and a number of occasions since uh, there have been concerns. There was the, the terrible incident of the shooting of um, five striking garment workers in um, 2014, while they were peaceably demanding a minimum wage. And we've seen uh, just a contemptuous treatment of political opponents, maybe even worse than contemptuous. I mean, the recent shooting of... Um of Kim Lay, the uh, the activist, very outspoken activist, um, has raised very, very serious questions as to who was behind this. It did have all the hallmarks of a political assassination, a guy just gunned down, uh, one drinking coffee in a neighbourhood cafe. Uh, the explanation is it was a private grievance, an unresolved debt issue or something, but I don't think too many people in Phnom Penh believe that. Unfortunately, uh, there's no unequivocal evidence uh, that the government's hand was in this, so it's very difficult under those circumstances for the international community to respond specifically to that case. But what the international community can, I think, do and should be now doing is responding to a whole pattern of really quite contemptuous violations of really quite fundamental human rights in Cambodia. We had a peace plan in place. It delivered it delivered peace, but it did not deliver working democracy. It did not deliver human rights protection. I'm not suggesting it's a, a case for any kind of overt physical intervention, uh, but it's certainly a case for naming, shaming, a case for investigation through such processes as are available, international criminal courts and so on, and certainly through the Human Rights Council processes in Geneva. Uh, there may well be a case for contemplating the application of some kind of sanctions, targeted sanctions against individuals, um, just ways of putting overt pressure. And certainly um, it's very, very possible and appropriate for foreign ministers and all their multiple dealings uh, with their Cambodian counterpart 
certainly possible for prime ministers in all the multiple occasions that arise with regional forums and global forums. There are ample opportunities to convey very, very clearly uh, the sense of distaste and concern of the wider community with what's going on. And my experience over many, many years is that that kind of pressure, some of it private, some of it behind the scenes, but combined with a bit of more overt pressure as well, particularly in response to particular situations for where there's obvious liability that you can point to, all of this does have an effect. Even the most egregious human rights violators don't like to be named and shamed, don't like to be stood up in front of a, a wider international audience. They like to keep this stuff you know, under the covers. So one can only uh, work on the basis that that kind of pressure uh, has some kind of useful effect and certainly certainly at least conveys the message that they can't get away with this stuff without anyone noticing. And maybe that's a, a slim read on which to, to hang your hopes for policy change, but it's frankly all we can realistically do at the moment. But I'd like to see, I'd like to see Australia, I'd like to see the ASEAN neighbours, I'd like to see a lot of other international players being much more vocal than they have been. The evidence is just too, too strong for too long about the, uh, the contemptuous indifference for human rights in that country, which is a tragedy given everything else it's been through and the possibility that was there that it could have become a really shining beacon uh, for the neighbourhood. So I feel very depressed about that state of play. Dr. Spur, I can see you nodding vigorously in agreement uh, yeah. with what Professor Evans proposes. It strikes me that there hasn't been uh, the, the attention warranted on this issue, and I, and I think even from some of the NGOs who haven't been as active as they perhaps could be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the NGOs, that's a whole other uh, question in itself, right? And um, a lot of their, I've been frustrated myself with, with many of the NGOs and, and their response to particularly the various dimensions of responding to homelessness in the country, but, you know, many of the, the larger human rights uh, issues that are going on as well, um, where they're, you know, driven by donor demands, and it's not a case of, of being that adaptive to what's going on. They have a, a particular mandate in place, and they need to respond to that, and some of the, you know, the fast-moving changes that are happening on the ground, they're just not able to respond in a way that is necessarily uh, as productive as I'd like to see it be. Where I place my sort of hope for Cambodia's future is in... Uh, you know, the savviness of young people, particularly in the urban setting, but increasingly in the rural sphere as well, that I think there is just a, a sense in contemporary Cambodia that people have had enough of, of what's going on. And um, we saw during the last election in 2013 that, you know, thousands and thousands of people converging on the streets. And the opposition party has attempted to claim this as being, you know, um, uh, sort of support for their for their party, but I don't actually read it that way. I think it's more just people are fed up with the the, the various forms of of human rights violations that are going on, and not necessarily working in solidarity with each other. Perhaps so we have a. a a labor movement that's happening particularly around the garment industry but then we have some movements that are happening around the um, the illegal logging that's taking place we have other movements that are taking place around dispossession and forced eviction so uh, just you know the the scope of the violations that are going on people are just fed up and are coming together and you know using public space as a forum to sort of 
make their concerns visible and make their voices heard. And I think that is extremely intimidating for the government that's in power. They, um, you know, as with any sort of uh, government that shows authoritarian stripes, it's people power that is the biggest threat. And so there's been a lot of attempts to clamp down on that, various forms of regulating public space and trying to, to make it so protesters can only gather in particular areas. The the sort of big development was a, a, a site designated as Freedom Park, and the name is nothing but, you know, sadly and tragically ironic now because Freedom Park is a closed space where protesters are no longer able to assemble. So these kind of regulatory um, mechanisms to try and stop um, you know, the, the public sentiment from, from swelling up, it's just not working. And I think a lot of the sort of... Um, echoes of the, of the early 1990s that we're now seeing in terms of the um, um, the kinds of political violence that are developing in Cambodia today are reflections of what's potentially coming in 2018, which may be a change in government. You know, nobody can predict this, but I think the government in power is certainly... Um, you know, has their work cut out for them if they're to retain power and certainly are afraid of this upcoming election and doing everything they can to um, to control the climate. And one of the big things as well, which we haven't really touched upon, is, you know, the clampdown on the press and, and trying to stop uh, public discussion from taking place in these kinds of forums, including now going after English language media, which the Phnom Penh Post and the Cambodia Daily for a long time were just like... Uh, you know, over in their own own corner, so to speak, they could say whatever they want, but increasingly there's uh, thinly veiled threats being made against English language media now as well. I agree very much with Simon that one of the heartening features of the present situation in Cambodia, one of the few heartening features, is the sense one has that the wider population is fed up, the younger generation in particular, and their tolerance levels for the kind of autocracy and corruption and just distaste for respect for basic human rights is, is really a, becoming a very widespread national phenomenon, which I'm sure, if the elections are free and fair, would translate into very strong, quite possibly, majority support uh, for the opposition to Hun Sen. The biggest single thing, I guess, the international community can do in the period ahead is put maximum pressure on to ensure that that next election in 2018 is free and fair, not just by sending in some observers at the last minute to see whether there's any obvious fiddles going on in the ballot box or in the queues outside, but the whole process of registration of voters, uh, the whole business of creating an environment in which opposition voices can in fact be heard and not totally quashed in the run-up the months before the campaign, and of course the election process itself. There's plenty of reason to suspect that that um, election process in recent years has been anything but uh, completely free and fair, although one should never underestimate the extent to which you know, authoritarian rulers do still have their own constituencies and the extent to which they can buy support. And we've seen plenty of examples of that around the world over the years. We've seen plenty of examples, unhappily, of colour revolutions or people's revolutions uh, ending very, very sadly indeed in parts of Europe and 
course, North Africa, the Middle East. So these things are not self-executing and um, self-fulfilling uh, popular revolutions or popular distaste. They're, a, they're an absolutely necessary ingredient for a change, but they're not always a sufficient ingredient. So this is the particular context, apart from the naming and shaming and investigation and pressure and political leverage being applied diplomatically and otherwise. I think the very, very specific thing that the international community should be focusing on is that guaranteeing that those uh, elections are free and fair. And ASEAN should be able to play a significant role in this respect. I mean, ASEAN is a, a disappointment constantly in terms of its willingness to do anything robust at all uh, when there's internal stuff going on in various of its members. But really the uh, the credibility of ASEAN is a little bit fragile at the moment, uh, not least with events in Myanmar and a few other places. And um, I think it is important that it get its act together and there be lots and lots of international pressure mounted to, uh, to get the best possible, freest possible election we can. Well, with less than two years to go, that's something that will have to uh, be acted on fairly quickly. Well, I think we've got uh, a sense of hope for the future, but a very strident call for action uh, to make sure that future is the one Cambodia deserves. Thank you both so very much for your time, for your expert analysis and for your insights. Yeah, thank thank you. you. Fascinating stuff. And thanks to both Simon and Gareth for their time. If you'd like to read more about what's happening on the ground in Cambodia, Simon Springer has written an excellent piece for Policy Forum. You can find it at policyforum.net uh, and there's a link to the page in the description of this podcast. You may recall our last two podcasts have looked at two big issues for the region, the recent ruling on the South China Sea and the idea of a universal basic income. Thanks to everyone who listened and got in contact over those. We are really keen to get your feedback on these podcasts and the issues discussed. It's great to see that people have enjoyed them and found the subjects engaging. On the South China Sea podcast, Sid Chakravarti said the pod was superbly interesting, which is really nice, thank you, and said it'd be great to hear some thoughts about fisheries governance in the context of the verdict. I agree that's a very interesting issue. Keep an eye on policyforum.net because we've got some pieces coming up which touch on that. Thanks for the comments, Sid. There's been lots of kind comments on the basic income pod too. Thanks Alex Sewell, who said it was a fantastic pod on the theory, policy and practice of a basic income. And thanks also Miranda Stewart, Luke Buckmaster and Emily Mullane, who all let us know they enjoyed it. We had an interesting comment from Natalie, who got in contact with us on Facebook. She said the one thing the pod didn't touch on was the potential effects a guaranteed basic income could have on people's mental health. She writes, I think that mental health is on many occasions closely or even directly related to financial stress. To alleviate just some of that stress will take some pressure off our mental health resources. It may even save lives. I think the roadblocks in our current system are sometimes too much for the people that may need it most to access the help they need, even though it's available to them. That's a really good point and well made, I think. Many thanks, Natalie. In our future pod, we are hoping to take a look at some innovative mental health policies from around the world, and we're really keen to get your ideas and suggestions for that, as well as hear your feedback and thoughts on what we've talked about today. You can tweet us at Apps Policy Forum. We're on Facebook as Asia Pacific Policy Society or email us, team at policyforum.net. If you're enjoying the podcast series, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a quick review at iTunes. It'll only take 30 seconds or so and doing it will be a big help to us in getting the word out. 
Don't forget you can keep up to date with all of the latest analysis, debate and discussion on public policy at policyforum.net. We'll be back in a fortnight with another Policy Forum pod. Thanks for listening to this one. We'll be back soon. Cheerio. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>